The digital revolution has given rise to businesses that revolve around data sets and the insights gleaned from them. As data-focused companies proliferate, they're challenging the way investors find opportunity. One lesson we've learned is that old economy rules for stock picking no longer apply. Welcome to Bernstein Insights, and this is The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, and I'm joined today by senior investment strategist, Paul Robertson. So, Paul, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Paul, a couple of months ago, you were on an episode of The Pulse where we discussed the future of artificial intelligence, and we discussed the best way to get exposure to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Today, let's pull back the lens a little bit and highlight some of the differences in picking stocks in a digital world. For instance, in the industrial economy, businesses are powered by factories and machines and railroads and planes, where sizing up investment potential often involves valuing those hard assets. But how is that approach relevant or not relevant today in a more digital economy? Well, Matt, what characterizes digital companies is very much more that the key competitive assets are not hard, tangible assets. They're actually invisible. Now, this is kind of a a culture shock for many analysts. I mean, historically, you'd go and visit a company and you'd almost literally kick the tires. Mm -hmm. You were examining those hard assets. If those hard assets were in good shape, well... You knew that even if the company's market strategy, say, failed, there'd still be value in the company. You've measured the hard assets. You have a sense for them. You know what you might get in a liquidation or if they were to be sold to somewhere else. That's sort of a measure of fundamental value. But when you're looking at companies like Facebook or Amazon or Netflix or Google, the key competitive assets are data insights. They're insights generated by algorithms. It's These algorithms that enables Amazon to convince you to order three things when you went to the site just hoping to buy one thing. It's the algorithm that lets Netflix recommend the next show that you want to watch after you've binge-watched season three of Stranger Things. These algorithms are valuable. They are the key competitive assets, but they're intangible. And they're internally produced. And because they're internally produced, they're not reported on balance sheets, which makes them much harder to value. Okay, so in other words, how does an analyst get up close and personal with a database or an algorithm? There is no factory floor to walk when you go out and visit these businesses. That's exactly right. That is the challenge that analysts face when they're analyzing these companies. But it goes beyond that. You see, the hard assets of industrial firms are often interchangeable. I mean, one lathe or truck or box-folding machine is as valuable as another. You can transfer them from company to company, and they have value at company A and company B and company C. But the digital assets of new economy competitors differ significantly from company to company, and what they really are are proprietary insights from large in-house data sets. So that's fascinating. I never really thought about that, how they are so proprietary. Just flesh that out a little bit further about how they're not transferable like a lathe or a widget is for industrial businesses. Yeah, that's exactly the point, Matt. You can move 
hard assets from one company to another company relatively easily and, and put them to good use. But the, the key competitive assets at companies like Facebook and Netflix are insights about consumer behavior. And they're insights about consumer behavior that are specific to that platform. So, of course, if an industrial company goes bankrupt, you can move the tangible assets around to a competitor or, or somewhere else and put them to good use. But if, say, a social media company were to fail or disappear, I have in mind Friendster or MySpace, there's, there's almost nothing. I had nothing. no idea. I'm, I'm a devotee of, of uh, <laughs> past social media companies. There's almost nothing that you can extract from the ruins and sell to someone else and monetize in any way. So let's just set aside that worst case scenario of MySpace or, or Friendster and the fact that lays also wear out over time. And let's, let's focus instead on this idea that insights about consumers become more reliable as data sets grow. In the last episode, we, we talked about the ways that big data business models up the ante. They tend to be self-reinforcing, don't they? Yes, exactly. And look, in order just to use a left field example here, I want to go back to Blue River Technology, which I talked about in that earlier episode. What Blue River Technology does is use machine learning and computer vision to identify weeds among beds of lettuce. What the company started with was thousands of pictures of lettuce plants, and then it trained the machine learning algorithm to distinguish between lettuce and weeds. But it's more than just distinguishing between lettuce and weeds. You see, once the company really got this sea and spray technology up and operating, the really virtuous flywheel here effect began. Because each time the technology was used on a field of lettuce, the company collected more data, really about weeds here, and the data made the algorithm more accurate. You see, the idea is to precisely spray the herbicide on a particular weed, the herbicide that kills that weed and nothing else. You want to get away from broad-based herbicides and apply precise doses of a specific herbicide for the precise weed that you've identified. Now, this is hard. It is hard stuff, but the more experience you get at it, the better you get at this precise targeting, and therefore the lower the amount of herbicide you have to use in order to weed the lettuce field. And so I guess what, over time you do it enough and what, create some type of competitive advantage that can't be reached? That's right. You, you've got such a head start over your competitors that you become the default in this space. Now, I appreciate that not all of our listeners are farmers or Some are. Are, are as excited by um, precise applications of herbicides as moi might be. So <laughs> let me give you another example. Let, let's just go to Facebook, which is an example I think we're all much more familiar with. But let's look at Facebook from a slightly different direction. You see, what Facebook is doing is using predictive algorithms to connect seemingly unrelated dots. So what Facebook is tracking and recording, for example, are things like friends' posts that you liked, places you posted from on vacation, links that your friends, not you, but your friends have opened. And through these data points, what Facebook is able to do is build up a really sophisticated and accurate 
sense of your values and your preferences, your life's, the, the stage in life that you're at, the kind of things ultimately that they might be able to induce you to buy. And so they use all of these insights to serve you far more targeted, far more relevant ads. And that targeting increases the likelihood that an advertiser will be able to convert you from a browser to a purchaser. And so if Facebook ends up being a far more attractive place for advertisers to advertise, as well as being a far more attractive place for users to gather than Friendster or MySpace, well, what you have is this enormous competitive advantage that Facebook has established. So I get it. The point that you're making is by collecting all of this information, there's value in those businesses that you can't kick or hold or in any way tangibly understand. So is there anything else we need to be thinking about here? I wanted to throw inject another concept here. The virtuous cycle that we're describing means that companies with the first mover advantage in the digital world, or, or perhaps just those that fortuitously generated the best insights about their customers, might develop such an overwhelming competitive edge that they can drive their competitors out of business. So there's actually a more fundamental question here. In an industrial world, you might look at the leading company in a sector and the number two or number three players and have a reasonable expectation that the number two or number three players will be there in a year or two or three years' time. But that's not necessarily the case here. So what we find is that there's a tendency for these industries to almost monopolize. And so is this a winner-take-all environment that you've spoken about before? That's exactly right. It's an environment where when you're evaluating investments, you actually have to be really careful about the second-tier player. The second-tier player might be trading at what your valuation metrics tell you is a really interesting valuation. But you might be about to fall into a classic value trap here. It might be that that company is on its way out of the industry at a far more dramatic pace than traditionally happens in the digital world. So when you're thinking about evaluating investment opportunities here, you have to recognize that this winner-take-all phenomena is going to profoundly distort or change, change the way you think about what represents an attractive investment opportunity. So let me just try and recap what we've covered so far because we've covered a lot. Uh, new economy investors face this intricate challenge of, one, how to value assets that you can't see or touch, and two, those assets may need to be state of the industry in order to have any value at all because of this whole winner-take-all environment that you speak of. Okay, with that backdrop, what should investors do? Well, Matt, what they've got to do is change the way they assess the attractiveness investment opportunities. What you've really got to do here is introduce new metrics into the picture. And it's clear that some investors have been very slow to evolve here. It is striking, for example, that the broad value indices, I, I think we're all familiar with the idea that the index makers or the benchmark providers often break down a broad equity market into the value stocks and the growth stocks. Well, they still to this day typically use price to book as a way to define the value part of the universe. Let's just clear what price to book is. Price to book value is a valuation metric that looks at the ratio between the price of a stock 
divided by the book value of the business. And the book value is just the assets minus the liabilities. And so it's one way of a number of ways of measuring valuation or expensiveness or cheapness in an industry or an asset class. That's exactly right. And and price to book can still be very useful in distinguishing between old economy companies. The reason it works in old economy companies is that book value the sort of the residual value of all of the assets holds up if you have to break the company up and sell the assets to different users. So it works for industrial companies, but it doesn't work in the new digital economy. Okay, so if there's challenges with price to book and other traditional valuation metrics that we've all grown up on, how do we approach valuation today given these challenges? So we've had to evolve, as I've suggested. At Bernstein, we've always focused on indicators like cash flows. These measures, however, have become much more central to how we evaluate companies today. What's so special about cash flow for these now digital businesses? Well, as we've said, you can't see or touch a digital asset, but what you can measure is the amount of cash that they're generating. And that's key. But it goes beyond simply the fact that you can measure the amount of cash that they generate. In a digital company, more of that cash flow can likely be spent on expansion and growth opportunities. Whereas at industrial companies, some portion of the cash has to be tapped to replace worn out equipment. So it's this difference, along with the self-reinforcing nature of digital world success, that actually justifies higher cash flow multiples for digital world economies. Now, of course, ultimately, the economy is changing as the importance of tangible assets declines and the importance of intangible assets rises. And in turn, this means that the weight of industrial companies in the equity market and in our portfolios is declining. And the weight of new economy companies is rising in, our, in both the market and in our portfolios. So let me just say what I, what I think you're telling us, which is that in response to these broader shifts we've evolved the way that we pick stocks and build portfolios and value assets. Today, we're emphasizing companies with attractive cash flows that have the potential to grow that cash flow generation over time. And this ensures that we have exposure to these new sources of wealth creation in our economy. That's right. But let me try and add one extra gloss to all of this. Obviously, the nature of the economy has changed and our portfolios have had to change with it. But I think there's a really subtle point here. Were we using the same approaches to picking stocks that we've traditionally used, we'd have far fewer digital world economy companies in our portfolios because of their high valuations on metrics like price Mm -hmm. to book and far more large industrial companies. But because we've evolved, what you see today is fewer large industrial companies, even relative to their size in the economy, and more exposure to these digital world economy companies. I think evolution, obviously, is the key part of this whole conversation. The industry has always had to evolve, given changes in the economy, and this is just the latest iteration, given the growth in digital assets and digital businesses in our economy today. So, Paul... We could go on forever, as you know, but I just want to thank you for your time and your insights once again and and for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure to be here, Matt. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on iTunes or your podcast service of choice and be sure to subscribe. Until next time, take care. 
Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.